Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why? Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We're all struggling this winter, and the pandemic seems as if it will never let go. So this month, I wanted to share something fun with you. Way back in March 2012, I interviewed Hal Herzog in front of a live audience. He's an ethnozoologist, someone who studies the relationship between human beings and animals. It's one of my all-time favorite episodes of Why, and I hope it brightens your mood and celebrates the non-human creatures that so often bring joy and companionship into our homes. So please enjoy this encore presentation of Why Radio, Love, Hate, or Eat, How Humans Relate to Animals. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why, Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Today we're talking with Hal Herzog about human attitudes towards animals, and we're doing it live in front of an audience at the University of North Dakota Writers' Conference. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Why. This past October, my family lost our beloved dog, Mingus. The mourning process has been brutal. I still can't really talk about it. The death of a pet evokes a sadness that people either get or they don't, and it feels impossible to explain the pain to those who don't understand how intimately an animal can be a part of someone's life. Last month, we got another dog, a sweet three-year-old border collie named Rosie. She's a rescue, so like the rest of us, she has her baggage, not the least of which is a bad case of separation anxiety. We leave the house, she shreds the drapes. We go out to eat, she craps on the floor. We go to work, she pees on our bed. So now we crate her when we're out of the house. This is a good thing. She's calmer and we don't have to watch where we step when we get home. But it also means that she's stuck in a cage for a couple of hours at a time. Dogs are den animals, but it's hard for me to enter into the relevant mindset. She likes it better in her crate when she's alone, but frankly, that seems a little neurotic to me. Here's the thing. Like most dog people, my wife and I will talk about whether Rosie is happy in our house. We'll ask whether she misses her previous owner or discuss her mood in general. But whatever those moods are, however we want to define them, they aren't human moods. We are anthropomorphizing Rosie beyond what makes sense. She may get bored, but she doesn't resent us for creating her. She may be nervous, but she's not neurotic. She may not understand the unfamiliar environment, but she's not walking around cursing her previous owner for abandoning her. She's a dog. She lives in the moment, and our job is to habituate her. Exercise, discipline, and affection in that order. Now, all of this is what I'm supposed to say. Rationally, I understand that dogs don't experience the world as we do, but it doesn't feel that way to me. I can't help but think there's a lot more going on behind her blue eyes than just looking for cues and waiting for something to happen. I have to think this way to live with her. Is it ever possible to imagine the world from a dog's perspective? I don't know. I don't even know if we can enter into another human's. Literature, poetry, visual art, these are the best tools we have for seeing the world as someone else does. But each of these requires interpretation, and understanding comes from our own points of view. Everything else is approximation. A dog doesn't have general concepts. She doesn't know that Rosie is her name. She just hears that sound, Rosie, and responds with attention, and more of it, the person that gives her what she wants. My wife is fond of ridiculing those who claim that dogs give unconditional love. There's nothing unconditional about it, she says. They give back exactly what you give them. If you're attentive, they follow you around affectionately. If you ignore them, they follow someone else. So in the end, 
While the relationship between humans and dogs are reciprocal in some important way, they're still defined by the people who engage the animal. Certainly a dog's personality is relevant. Rosie is shy, some dogs are mean. But virtu virtually all of this can be remedied with training. To anticipate today's discussion, it is we, the human beings, who decide which animals to love, which to hate, and which to eat. Animals are the canvas that we paint on. It is our own inner lives that are the subject. I will admit that to my own ears, I sound like I'm distancing myself from our new dog, treating her like a stranger instead of family. Mingus, our first dog, loved me. I won't entertain any other possibility, however childish or unscientific that may be. Thankfully, today's guest will likely tell me that even if I'm wrong, I'm far from alone in my stubbornness. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the loss of rationality that comes with human attitudes about animals. Can we be ethical about something when we're so irrational about it? Dogs and humans evolved side by side. Maybe pretending that there is love between us is itself the only rational choice. And maybe pretending that we're not pretending is the most ethical thing we can do. So let's turn to our guest. Hal Herzog is professor of psychology at Western Carolina University and the author of Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. He's an award-winning teacher and researcher and has written more than 100 articles and book chapters. Hal, thanks for joining us on Why. Jack, thanks for having me here. I'm really... Really happy to be here in North Dakota. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful day, and it's a wonderful audience, and the room is almost full, and I couldn't be happier. And I know that everyone's real excited to have you here. People have been talking about it for a couple of days, and they've been asking all these questions. And so let me actually start with the most basic one. Are human feelings about animals irrational? Yes. Well, it's been a great show. Thanks for coming. You're welcome. Yeah, I think I think um, I think they are. And you said a couple of things. I think that were just absolutely on the mark. Um, human attitudes about animals are mostly irrational. And the the phrase that I love that you used was that animals are canvas. I think that we paint on. And my uh, the theme in my book at one level is about animals, but it, it's at another level, it's about the larger issue of rationality and human moral decision-making generally. And my, I think the real message there is that um, one reason that we think strangely about animals, one reason why it's so hard to think straight about animals is it's really so hard to think straight about everything. And I just find animals an incredibly great window of looking at human nature and all its beauty and in all its insanity. Is that narcissistic? I mean, in the sense that if, if, if when we look at animals, we're just really thinking about ourselves, why are they there? Why don't we just hang out with ourselves? No, I don't think it's narcissistic at all. Um, I think in some ways what we see in our relationships with animals, especially in people that care deeply about animals, is people that put so much of themselves into a creature that... Uh, makes no sense from an evolutionary perspective, for example. Uh, and so, no, I don't, I don't think it's narcissistic. Some, some aspects of those relationships are narcissistic. Uh, you, you having control over an animal, or one might say that uh, the human's ability to uh, shape the wolf into things ranging from a Pomeranian to a Great Dane, that that's narcissistic. We're creating the, these animals in this image that we want. But I'd say in general, narcissism is not the general theme. So what makes an animal an animal? I mean, you've, you, you've talked in the past about how 
vegetarians will say that don't, they don't eat meat, you know, while they're eating a fish sandwich. Um, we don't think of a worm, we don't think of a salamander as the same type of thing as our dog, as our cat, as our parrot. And we certainly don't think of the same type of thing as we are. So what makes an animal an animal other than well, I'm not even going to what makes an animal an animal? Well, I think that's such a great I think that's such a great question. I mean, there's a biological definition that's that's relatively clear about that, but I'm more interested in the psychological definition. And and in a sense there's the animals that we that we care about and then there's the animals we don't even think of as an animal. For example, uh, USA Today magazine, that, that USA Today newspaper had a, had a fascinating article today about Starbucks. And what they're doing is they're changing the dye, the coloring that they use to flavor Starbucks coffee. Not to flavor, but to color Starbucks coffee. And they're going to a beetle, a ground-up beetle. And it turns out that the vegans of America are very upset that when you have your latte at Starbucks that you're actually going to be drinking meat. I don't think of an insect as, as an animal in that sense. But for, for a vegan, that, that, that bug is is an animal worthy of consideration. I, I just keep thinking, how dangerous can the vegans be when they have so little protein in their system? <laughs> yeah, I, you, know, I, I, you know, I mean, what, what's shocking about that as sort of a gateway into the conversation is that most people don't think about the fact that Starbucks coffee is colored. They think that, you know, coffee is coffee, and that's the color it is, but there's clearly a color. And so... If we don't even know what coffee is, how do we know what an animal is? I think that's exactly right. And my response is the same as you. I, I had no idea that they put stuff in coffee to make it look like coffee. And the idea that they're putting meat into, <laughs> meat into it um, is, is, uh, is absolutely fascinating. The, the thing, I think the subtext here is, um, is the animals we care about and the animals we don't care about, and why we are so concerned about others, and, you know, some and not others. And some of it has to do with, with biological factors. For example, uh, some a Spanish scientists did a study, and they found out how much money people would, would give to uh, protect certain species. And they found one of the biggest factors was the size of the animal's eyes. So animals with big eyes grab us. We see them as like us. We see them as our kids. And so one thing is that the more the animals like us, the more that we th think of it as an animal. There's, there's, there's that narcissism again. I mean, in the sense that, it, in the sense that, you know, um, we can't get past our coded way of thinking about things. So you say big eyes, but not a thousand eyes. So most people don't have flies who are pets. But as you point out, Kids in Japan keep beetles as pets. They do. Mushi are mushi. Are, there's a category, and they do they do keep they do keep they do keep animals as pets. And one of the things that I've learned in writing my book is I've learned that culture is more important in human psychology than I thought it was. Than I gave it credit for. I'm an evolutionary psychologist for many years. I I thought when we when we looked at the best way to look at humans was through this lens of evolution in human nature, which is very difficult to change. In writing this book, I came across all these cultural differences, some of, some of which occur incredibly rapidly. And I've changed my mind. I think human nature is much more flexible than I gave it credit for. That, that surprises me in part because one of the great 
shifts in my life was when we had a daughter and it became fairly clear immediately that she had a personality, that she showed up with a personality and we as parents could uh, bring that out or try to temper it. But Adina's Adina and Adina ain't going to be nothing but Adina. And so I would have thought that what animals showed was that we're more on the nature side in the nature-nurture divide. Yeah, and that's what surprised me is that is that the degree to which I changed changed my mind my mind about that. Um, so, for example, let's take something that um, let's take pets. The type of animal that you have, whether you have a pet, and the type of pet you have, is more determined by where you live than anything else. Uh, pet keeping is not universal in human culture. In some cultures, the great pet is, is an eel that you keep in a water-filled pet, pit by your house. Uh, in other cultures, you mentioned Japan, uh, kids are crazy over, over, over insects. Um, in some cultures, there's no concept of pet. There's no word for pet. Those cultures are relatively rare. So I don't buy the idea that pet keeping is 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 universal and the same thing that that for example uh i was going to say meat eating meat, meat eating meat eating is uh not completely universal but it's common in almost every culture thinking about the word for pet though words also give us permission to think more or less about the animals that we ingest so americans eat beef not cow meat we eat pork, not pig, but Germans eat Schweinfleisch, which is pig flesh, right? And so lots of other cultures will name the animal. A friend of mine uh, had a four-year-old son, and this was quite a few years ago, so they were watching the first season of Survivor. And at one point in the movie, uh, sorry, in the show, the, the people on the show win a chicken. And the kid says... Uh, Mommy, why are they giving him a chicken? And she says, well, that they can eat the chicken. And he says, well, what do you mean, eat the chicken? And she says, well, you know, it's chicken. You eat chicken all the time, it's chicken. And he goes, chicken is chicken? Mommy, why didn't you tell me? And, you know, chicken and chicken, they sound the same and they're spelled the same, but they meant something different, right? So, so, so the, the language of pets, the language of meats really force us to think in a certain way, don't they? They do. And um, I think the meat industry is onto this. So for example, one of the things that the meat industry has done is that they have is this a word, demeatify? <laughs> it is now. <laughs> <laughs> the meat industry has demeatified uh, chicken, for example. Now, when I was a kid, my mom would go to the store. And your mother may have too. And if they were going to have chicken, you'd go buy it as a carcass. Remember those days? And you'd go home and you would hack it up. Now, less than 10% of chicken is sold as carcasses. And the rest is sold as sort of debonified, debloodified little slivers and things, which have great names like chicken tenders. Or uh, I, I have to tell you, when, when, when I go to the butcher and I make my Friday night chicken, I always ask for a whole chicken. I never ask for a chicken carcass. And so now I'm thinking, oh, chicken carcass, maybe I'll pass, you know? You get, no, I, I'm willing to give you credit because who cuts up that carcass in your house? I do. 
I do too. My wife will not cut up a chicken carcass. But I, so I'm the guy that, that cuts up the chicken carcass, um, which I don't mind a bit. And and but and at least you have the sense that there's that 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 was a creature at one time. And we've sort of got we've sort of gotten away from away from that. But carcass. I mean, just listen to that word, carcass. I mean, now I am experiencing Rosie's experience. Rosie carcass, right? It's it's there's. It's an onomatopoeia. It, it, it sounds like not what it is, but what it becomes in your mouth. And there is that transformation between the animal that, that even the animal body that you have and the thing that it becomes when you chew it, when you rip it apart, uh, when, you know, we, we used to, when our daughter was first learning to, to, to eat pieces of meat, which we taught her how to do, I mean, we'd say, you know, just eat it like Mingus, go, you know, and rip it off the, off the bone. And she got that. Right. And um, and but we don't eat. We don't swallow the meat in those chunks. We masticate it. We, we and, and so in some sense, we're doing linguistically what we're doing with our teeth and our mouths to the stuff before we can digest it. I love that. I think that I think that I think that's great. The other word I like is flesh. Flesh is a good word. But fl- but and flesh I use the word flesh. Yeah. I use the word flesh. You know, when you're writing a book, you don't want to use the same word over and over again. So I randomly throw in flesh whenever I want to, whenever, whenever I want to sort of get readers' attention. But, but, but flesh, flesh can also be erotic. And there's this whole category of things that, <laughs> part of the segue, that we don't do with our pets, right? And you and I were having a conversation before the show about bestiality. There's also a conversation <laughs> uh, in your book about the fact that while there are cultures that eat dogs, they separate the pet dogs from the meat dogs. Yes. And after your pet is dead, you don't celebrate by eating your pet. Um, and so the word flesh connects the animal to our sensuality, our eroticism, our physicality, whereas carcass separates the live from the dead, the victor from the loser. I, 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 I agree. I agree. We... Um... The uh, you know the, the government. I think I think the uh, the, uh, the the Department of Agriculture. They talk about carcasses. When you look at you know number of carcasses, uh, so they use they use the term carcass. In a way, carcass is is a, in a way sort of an abstraction as well. Yeah. All right. So, so so let's go back to what an animal is and what a pet is, and talk about the way that we create the pets that we want. You talked about the big eyes and the breeding, but is it weird that I always thought of purebred dogs as racist, as a sort of throwback to the notion that purity is good and that uh, mixing the races and mixing the idea uh, that types of people is bad and that there's something just inherently, and I'm sorry to all of the, the, the dog show people in the audience at home or in the room, but isn't there something, you know, odd about creating the dog master race i mean i mean isn't there something weird about purebred dogs as opposed to mutts yes and if you talk to uh purebred dog enthusiasts and by the way i you know we all have our guilty pleasures my guilty pleasure is uh, purebred dog shows. You know, I like going to these shows. Uh, I watch them on television. I watch the AKC. And it seems to me that there's almost nowhere do you see 
the twisted, complicated human relationship with nature is in a purebred dog show. Because what we see is what we have done in a mere couple of hundred years to this thing, the wolf. And we've, we've created animals that go all the way from, you know, you know, from, from Great Danes and Mastiffs to Yorkshire Terriers that weigh two, you know, two pounds as opposed to 200 pounds, which is the difference, the difference between a Yorkie and a Mastiff is the difference between me and a giant African bull elephant. That's what we've done to these guys. And if you talk to purebred dog enthusiasts, breeders, they love to talk about their animals. For some, and they love their animals. So for someone like me who sort of does ethnography, and you know, people talk about their animals, I just light up. I live for that. But they also talk about it in terms of genetic purity. And what they are after, what purebred dog enthusiasts tell me, is that they're after the perfect dog. And they say they're never going to breed it. There's never been a perfect dog. But they have this sort of platonic ideal in their head. They don't would consider that racist. But in your sense, it does sound racist. The language sounds racist um, in the sense because what they are going after is an ideal which is achieved through eugenics. And that's what dog breeding is. It's a form of eugenics. And what's really strange about that is that the, the sort of the standard example of eugenics and master race that we have has a weird twist. You talk in your book about how the, the Nazi uh, uh, government had the strongest animal protection laws pretty much in history. And that they... Uh, that it was a crime to do all of these things. And so while they were massacring millions of people, they were protecting the smallest of animals. To, to me, that's one of, of all the ironies that I point out in my book and of all the ironies that I read about in reaching it. To, to me, one of the greatest ironies is the Nazi animal protection movement. And uh, Hitler was a vegetarian, uh, although some animal rights activists disagree with that. Uh, the evidence shows that he was a vegetarian. Much of the Nazi high hierarchy loved animals. I think it was Himmler, it might have been Goebbels, I'm not sure, said at one point, one of the history's great ironic statements, if someone is mean to an animal, I will throw them in a concentration camp. They, they had laws protecting, they had laws governing the humane slaughter of lobsters in German restaurants. Uh, they had anti-vivisection laws uh, that was against the law. To, they had movie, they had, you know, this, thing with the HBO series, uh, Luck. They had uh, the first, they were the first country to have uh, laws regulating the use of, use of animals in movies. And the, here's the greatest of ironies. The greatest of ironies is that in 1942, the Nazis said the Jews could not own pets. And so they confiscated the pets of the Jews. And the pets of the Jews, they had to do something with them, so they killed them. But they killed them according to the Nazi Humane Slaughter Act. So they killed the, do the, the dogs and the cats of the Jews humanely. At the same time, they were putting the Jews themselves in concentration camps. So that, you know, that to me is, 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 is staggering. But I think it's a metaphor for much of our interactions with animals. And it is, it is a perfect example of how irrational it, it, it is and, and how there's, there's no rhyme or reason. So when we come back from the break... We'll tackle this head on. We'll start talking about ethics. We'll talk. We'll talk about the rationality issue and the consistency issue, and we'll and we'll, we'll dive in also to to the way that this meaning affects how 
pets and dogs can make us feel better or worse. You're listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Hal Herzog on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We're live at the UND Writers Conference. We'll be back after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're in front of the UND Writers Conference talking with Hal Herzog about animals, their human relationships, and we're discussing his book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. Welcome back to Why. About six months ago, I uh, went to the Bronx Zoo with my daughter, with my whole family, and, um, and we were talking about animals that we're afraid of. And she asked me, you know, what animal are you afraid of? And I couldn't think of any, you know? I mean, I didn't want to encounter a deadly snake or a wolf on my walk home, but there was nothing that terrified me. There was nothing that, that drove me insane at night when I was w- afraid of random things. And so then we're, we're walking around and we go into one of the dark places and there is this, I think it was a dwarf crocodile. And a dwarf crocodile was, I don't know, three feet long, maybe four feet long, and had teeth the size of its head. And the eyes were on either side, and people were feeding it. And they were feeding it chicken carcasses. And, um, and, and they had these baffles, these big, basically, shields, that they would put the shield down in between them and the crocodile and put the, the chicken carcass by the crocodile, and the crocodile would open its mouth huge and just go whoom, and eat the whole thing whole. And I turned to Adina and I said, this, <laughs> this is what I'm afraid of. This terrifies me. And to this day, it has terrified me. I was thinking, what am I going to talk about? I'm going to talk about dwarf crocodiles because it was, the, it was a thing that was designed to do two things at the same time, eat and kill. And it was staring at me and, you know, the people... They had their shields and they had their chickens, and I just thought, those people are crazy. Those people are crazy. And even though there was a big piece of glass between us and the crocodile, and even though there was no way that it was any danger, I was very, very happy when Adina and I left because those things were terrifying. Now, at the same time, Hal, you talk about the fact that our fear of animals are so irrational that we're basically afraid of the wrong animals, that most people are afraid of snakes when most people are injured by dogs. Yeah, I've got to say something about crocodiles, by the way. Um, I love crocodiles. 
I uh, did my do- I did my master's thesis research on crocodiles, including dwarf crocodiles. Scientific name Osteolemus, as I recall. And, and they their they, sound they, goes like this <laughs> when they want to call their mother. And so this, they, they, this they don't have mothers. They don't have they mothers. They mothers. spawn from the center of the earth. Furthermore, amongst reptiles, they not only have mothers. The mothers are great mothers. They take care of their young for up to two years. And um, so I think what this shows is actually an interesting point. Uh, when it comes to animals, it's different strokes for different, <laughs> different folks. You can have the crocodile. I'm okay with that trade. I was, in Flo- I was in Florida recently, and I took my kayak into this lake every day. And it, as we were leaving, this lady came up to me and said, I can't believe you're out in that lake with those crocodiles, nobody, with those alligators. Nobody goes in there. I said, why? She said, well... Somebody was killed in there recently. I can't believe you were in there. And I was completely unafraid and was chasing down these animals. Well, also, I mean, you know, someone was killed on the car ride there. I mean, if we, if we think about just the statistics of how many people die, die in car accidents or, or our household, you know, I mean, crocodiles are, are, are losing the statistical battle. But it's still, it's still, I mean, I'm still talking about it. And I'm still thinking, that's just crazy. So, so what is it? Is it, is, it, is it nature? Is it evolution? Is it only culture uh, is it a mixture? I mean, how, how do we decide what we're afraid of? Well, I think I think as with most things, there's some mixture. But I think in terms of animal fears, especially toward things like reptiles and spiders, that that nature really plays the biggest role. And you know, with with crocodiles, for example, uh, your fear of that that dwarf crocodile, which could never eat you because they only get to be about that long. They're not I don't like these. Th- 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 I would not lie. It's <laughs> yeah, not like right. the saltwater crocodiles <laughs> yeah. that get to be 20 feet long. But but they crocodiles did at one point eat people. In fact, they still eat a lot of people in parts of India, Africa, and, and Australia. But the uh, the example that I use in my book has to do with snakes. Uh, snakes are the most common fear in the United States. Uh, between 50 and 60 people uh, percent of people say they're phobic of snakes. Um, the fact is that there's fewer than 10 people killed by snakes every year in the United States. Mostly people that deserved to die because they were doing something stupid with a snake. My favorite example is a guy who did not die, perhaps unfortunately, and um, he got bit by a rattlesnake on his tongue. Now, how do you get bit by a rattlesnake on your tongue? Well, there's that bestiality question. No, it was not. (laughs) Don't go there. Don't go there. What he was doing was showing how macho he was to his girlfriend. So he he grabs the snake, holds it up to his mouth, and starts flicking his tongue out toward the snake, and the snake grabs him by the tongue, and of course you get bit by a snake in a tongue rattlesnake, it swells up. But the fact is that very few people were killed or injured by snakes. Snakes, Snake fear is the most common snake, even in places like Maine and Ireland, where they don't even have any poisonous snakes. The animal you should be most afraid about is the dog. You are a hundred times more likely to be killed or injured by a dog than you are by a snake. A half a million people, five million people, four or five million people are, are bitten by dogs every year. I think something like 800,000 people are taken to an emergency room. And in a typical year, a dozen to two dozen people are killed by dogs. But yet, dogs are way down on the list of things that we're afraid of. So I think these fears are a product of our evolutionary heritage, where snakes did represent a real threat to our ancestors. And, and do you think that on some level uh, that's the joint project of the domestication of the dog um, manifesting itself. I was watching this documentary a little while ago that, that argued that scientists actually think that, that dogs have been domesticated a lot longer than we had thought and that 
some argue that you that we wouldn't have agricultural um, shepherding if it weren't for dogs. That we that it's not that the dogs came after the herding, but rather that the herding was only possible because of the dogs. Now that in itself was really interesting to me. But but if we've been together so long, are we just designed now to seek out that mutual affection, that mutual trust? The, um, there's a lot of argument about the age of dogs. We've probably been hanging out with dog-like wolves for you know, 100,000, 200,000 years, but there's really the best evidence for actual domestication of dogs, uh, this is genetic evidence, uh, basically goes back anywhere between 14,000 and 25,000 years ago, which in evolutionary time is not, a very, not actually a very long time, and probably began to occur when people formed settlements where there were garbage dumps. And so what happened was wolves began to hang around. Tameish, sort of naturally tame wolves began to hang around these garbage dumps, and the tamer winds had an advantage. And so there's, most people think that dogs sort of domestic, domesticated themselves. Whatever the case, it's real clear that dogs and humans understand each other amazingly well. And so there is this co-evolution between humans and dogs. But one of the things that you have suggested is that while dogs and humans understand each each other well that at least the dog might be lying i mean you 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 talk about you talk about this experiment where dogs um are are uh we're trying to figure out if dogs are really guilty when they do something bad right why don't you why don't you talk a little bit about this and you'll do a better job of it than i will <laughs> yeah this is an experiment you, you uh how many of you have dogs in your life You've all seen that guilty dog look when the dog looks up at you with those big eyes and says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, usually when it poops on the rug or tears up your furniture or something like that. The question is, does the dog feel a sense of guilt or shame? And this is actually an important question. It's an important philosophical question because the question is, are humans the only animal with a moral sense like that? And that dog sure looks guilty. But what Alexander Horowitz, a very excellent dog behaviorist, found out was she did some experiments where she would... Uh, uh, tell the owners that their dog missed, you know, the owners would be in the room and she would sort of present the dog with a cookie and the owner would say, don't eat the cookie. And then the owner would leave the room and then Alexander Horwitz would actually play a dirty trick on the dog and would give the dog the cookie. And some cases, in some cases not. And so when the owner came back, she would tell them, sometimes lying, that, oh, your dog misbehaved, the dog ate the cookie. And it turns out that the dog gave the, the, the guilty look only when the owner thought that the dog had misbehaved, not when the dog had actually misbehaved. So the guilty look is actually a response to you. It's you that's making your dog feel guilty. It's picking it up from your face. It's not that the dog has this in intrinsic sense of doing something wrong. And this can, this, this can be misleading, but it also can be really helpful. At one point, you suggest that therapy dogs, time with a therapy dog is basically equivalent to one Prozac pill. Right, that, 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 that there's something about therapy dogs that they make people feel better. So this, this manipulation can be harnessed, right? It can be in some cases. And actually, I don't say that. Um, what I say, what a lot of people say is that, what most people want to believe is that. In fact, there's an article in the New York Times, article in Atlantic recently, uh, saying that if you, have, if you get a pet, if you get a dog, you're going to live longer, you're going to be happier, you're going to be a better person. And 
I think this is because of misleading journalism. And I think that in reality, the evidence that pets are good for people is much less strong than the media would have you believe. So, so, so did I just exhibit total pet loving confirmation bias? I mean, I, I read your book and I yeah. thought it said, <laughs> you know, dogs equal Prozac. No, and what it said was I dogs do not, don't equal Prozac. I, do n- <laughs> I, I, in fact, do not believe that. Now, for some people, it's true. But... When I, I, I did not originally uh, want to write about pets in my book because a bunch of other people had done that, but I thought, well, I'm going to have to do it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at the, the, the effect of pets on human health. So I started amassing all the literature I could. And I know people that work in this area, and I wound up with two piles of papers, scientific papers, on my floor, which is where I keep things when I work. And there was a pile this high that's showing dogs and pets are good for people, and the thing that was surprising is that the pile showing either no effect or that pet owners were worse off kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and finally equaled the other pile. But you never hear about those studies. You never hear about those studies because they're not reported in the media. It's, it's, it's just so funny because I'm sitting here and I'm listening to you say this and there's this literally this part of my brain that's going, no, you're wrong, no. My life is better. Everyone's lives are better when they have ever go out and get a dog now and stop being an idiot, right? And so, and so it's, it's, there is this, this, this morality play, this really shallow, poorly written morality play in my head right now, just listening to that and saying, how can the study, it's, this is just, something's wrong. Okay, let me, uh, for, well, first of all, you should see my hate mail. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you should see my hate mail when I talk about this. Uh, you know, pointy-headed college professor doesn't know what he's talking about yet again. Um, but let me give two examples from my book. In one case, I, I describe a, uh, a woman whose, uh, I think, genuinely her life was saved by her cat. Her husband died. This cat uh, uh, filled a void in her life, and I saw it in my own parents. I next describe a couple that I interviewed um, about their dogs that they got, and uh, it turned out to be a nightmare to make a long and fascinating story short, uh, after an hour's worth of interviews, I said, well, uh, they, they couldn't have friends over anymore because the dogs are wrecking their house. Um, they argued about what to do with the dogs constantly. And at one point I said, well, this must make, make it sort of tough on your marriage, right? And they looked at each other and they said, and there was this long pause, and they said, well, we're in counseling now. And then two weeks later, I got a message from the woman saying that they had decided to get divorced. The dogs were the major cause of the divorce. The other thing that you never hear about, for example, your doctor tells you you're depressed. Let's say you're an old person. Your doctor tells you you're depressed. What you should do is go out and get a dog instead of Prozac. What the doctor didn't tell you is that 85,000 people a year, mostly old people, are taken to hospital emergency rooms by tripping over their dogs. Now, if you had a drug that caused 85,000 people to fall and go over to the emergency room, that drug would be taken off the market. Don't you think? <laughs> that I, and I'm not making up oh, these statistics. I, but, but, By the way, I'm a pet owner myself. No, I'm a the pet adult, owner. The, I like pets. The I'm analytic philosopher in me is, 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 you know, but that doesn't count. I can invent a way around that. But, but uh, it's the right dog that's good for you. Let's, <laughs> let, let, let's, let's take a second. We'll, we'll come back to this. We do have a question from the audience. I was just going to ask if, if a dog is a chicken, how do chicken handlers, uh, you write about cockfighters, and, and instantly I wanted to ask how you got around to coming up with a brilliant idea to put a, a dead 
rooster from a cockfight to an autopsy. That was quite clever. Um, but the idea that a, if a dog is good for an owner and, and makes the owner feel good or adds years or Prozac to that dog owner's life, do chickens, to cockers, as you call them in your book, do they provide value and, and or just are they something that one brags about the same way you brag about your kid as my kids on the A honor roll at Phoenix Elementary? I, I studied, uh, I, I spent a couple of years studying rooster fighters, and the relationships between the rooster fighters and their chickens was incredibly complicated. And even after two years, I'm not completely sure I understood it. These guys, at some level, love their chickens. They have enormous respect for them. And by the way, game chickens are absolutely gorgeous animals. They're absolutely beautiful. And they strut around and they look proud and they're brave and they have all these attributes. And these are all admired by these rooster fighters. Uh, however, the relationship with, with them, sometimes they actually name them, but not usually. The relationships they have with them are so strange because um, they, 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 they have a 50-50 chance of dying any, in any Saturday night. And once they're dead, it's like they just toss them in a pile. And it's just like that. It just switches like that. So it's a very, very complicated, very, very complicated relationship. They're not considered pets. Now, let's say you have one that wins six times. Now, it's got a chance of dying every time it fights. So six-time winner is pretty rare. You're probably going to stop fighting that rooster, and you're probably going to let it, you're going to put it out the pasture like a thoroughbred horse, and you're going to let it mess with the hens all the time because that's, your, that's new, your new broodcock. And those guys have real special status, and they get they get sort of attached to them. But it's not the sort of attachment that they would have toward their dogs. It, it's something that I never could quite understand. And I would get I would talk to these guys about it, and I never saw one one chicken fighter told me uh, that you know when one of his roosters died he would cry. But I never I didn't first of all I didn't believe him because because this is a pretty macho atmosphere. And, and, and second of all, I never saw anybody re- express any regret about the death of one of their roosters. It's just part of the part of the game that they're playing. It, and, and we can come back to this because they don't have the big eyes. So, so I mean, is is a chicken something just to think about? And we'll come back to it in a second. Is the chicken just uh, semiotically just so different from the kind of animals that we want that maybe you can't have that same relationship? No, I don't think so. I think there are some people that have that keep chickens and they have. You know, I've got friends that keep chickens and that they have. They they you know they they are their pets. There are lots of people that keep birds for pets and have very deep relationship with deep with them. You know, read uh, 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 Irene Pepperberg's book about her parrot Alex. Incredibly deep relationship there. So I don't think inherently there's something about a chicken. I I kept chickens as pets. I kept game. Ch- I never fought these chickens, but I had game chickens around my house because I just thought they were so beautiful. And um, uh, but, but I didn't really consider them pets. We have another question from the audience. Yeah, I actually wondered if you could maybe speak to um, maybe animal rights in a legal sense with the SeaWorld case that was decided in February, um, kind of bringing that issue to the forefront of American consciousness in a way that it hasn't really been before. Um, Council for, I mean, I don't know if everybody's familiar with the case, but basically uh, PETA brought a claim against SeaWorld saying that uh, under the 13th Amendment, orcas were prohibited from being enslaved um, and basically said that because they could suffer the the prohibitive effect of being enslaved that they should be protected. And it was dismissed, although the effort was applauded by the judge. So I was wondering if you could just speak to your opinion on that. Happily. 
This case was particularly interesting because you used the term orca. What did they used to call those guys? Killer whales. Now, it turned out one of those orcas was a guy named Titicum, who was a killer whale. He had killed three people. And it was Titicum who, in 2010, actually drowned his owner, Dawn, I've forgotten her last name, in front of a crowd of tourists. So he had killed. That, that orca had actually killed three people. So if we're going to call that guy a person, it strikes me as we, we might consider him a serial, a serial killer. So it's sort of a, sort of a mixed bag. Um, I, yeah, I actually, uh, I was actually at a conference on a law and animal rights recently, and that case came up. And, uh, one of you, some of you may have watched, watched a TV show, Harry's Law which actually did a, uh, a, a really interesting one recently on should apes be considered persons. This gets, to the, this gets to the notion of what is a person and should certain animals be considered persons. And the judge in this case, as in the Harry's Law case, as in every case, decided, I think correctly, that animals are not persons. Now, what Peter argued was that the, is it the 14th Amendment 13th Amendment doesn't use the word person. And so that's why they couched it in terms of slaves. But I think the judge, I think the judge made the correct decision in terms of, in terms of law. The problem is that the term personhood has become so incredibly broadened that IBM is now a person. Corporations are now a person. And I don't know about the law here, but, but it, there's a constitutional amendment on that, which most of the Republican candidates have endorsed to, to consider a fertilized egg a person which has huge implications for things like birth control. So I thought, I thought the judge in that case uh, basically made the right decision uh, in terms of personhood, although I do not support keeping whales in captivity like that. This, but, is, this is interesting because our, our June show is actually going to be with someone who is going to argue uh, that corporations should be considered persons. And so all of a sudden now you have this almost a paradox, right, that this non-living... Uh, entity made up of a zillion individual things is a person, but this living entity made up of one biological unit is not. That's right. And so, so this this gets back to our really initial conversation about rationality. And so, let me ask: Is consistency a virtue? I mean, part of what you're arguing is that human beings are largely inconsistent about their attitudes towards animals and many other things. Is consistency a virtue or is consistency just, you know, whatever? That, that really gets to the heart of the matter. And that's something that I have struggled with over and over. And, I, and it's, the, it, it's the thing that sort of separates me from philosophers, I think. Uh, I think consistency is a virtue, sort of. But I think it can also get you in a lot of trouble. And we see this in philosophers and we see it let me talk about two ways consistency can get you in trouble. Let me talk about way consistencies get philosophers in trouble. Uh, take Peter Singer, uh, Mr. Animal Rights, who uh, I have an enormous amount of respect for. So Singer argues that, if it, that, that good is defined in terms of pleasure. Well, he uses that logic because he's very logical, as philosophers tend to be, and he concludes, uh, number one, that it just might be okay if you have a defective child to euthanize that child if the mother can then have another child that's going to be uh, healthy and have a better, happier life. Singer also concludes, he didn't sort of absolutely say this, but he sort of implied this in a book review, that it just might be okay for you to have sex with your dog 
if you both find the relationship enjoyable because you're increasing the sum total of pressure. But that that's in violation of you know our our, our moral intuition. Uh, sing, uh, a logic uh, got a woman named Joan Dunahir to conclude that a spider has as much right to life as a human being, and that the real tragedy of 9/11 was the death of 35 million chickens that day. The other thing is that. Consistency can be morally paralyzing in the context of animal rights. That uh, consistency can mean that you spend your whole life worrying about things like uh, wearing these leather shoes that you really like. Or that is it moral to what should you do about the termites that are eating your house down? And Joan Dunnier says that termites have as much right to life as to, much right to your house as you do. So I think I think that consistency can pose a heavy, heavy, heavy moral burden sometimes. Another question from the audience. Yeah, this might seem a little tangential, but I found where it fits in now. So uh, children two, three, four years of age don't know anything about court decisions or legislative action. But if you ask a child of that age, preferably in front of their mother, say, Susie, is your mom a plant or an animal? Invariably they'll say, after some considerable thinking, you can see them thinking, they'll say, she's a plant. And I've tested it in all kinds of areas in the United States only, and I'm wondering if, because of your cultural uh, understandings, are we just enculturated in America to automatically deny our animality, or do you think there are some cultures where that wouldn't be the answer that the child would give? The studies I've seen on that have tended to show the opposite. They have asked very young children, um, let's say objects, and some of these objects are unfamiliar animals, like a, you know, a pangolin or a uh, you know, aardvark or some some weird animal that you know, you know, an armadillo, something kids wouldn't encounter, as opposed to let's say unfamiliar tools, and they ask the kid, um, okay, ask you know, ask any question you want to about that thing. And it turns out that kids ask different questions about animals than they do about tools. So that they are in fact able to identify animate creatures from an incredibly early age. So they're more likely, if you show them a picture of a pangolin, they're more likely to say, well, what does it eat? You know, how does it move? And for a tool, they say, they'll say things like, what is it used for? So um, my impression, and there's a substantial literature on this, that people, that little kids do seem to be able to identify biological animate creatures um, that they're unfamiliar with at, in contrast to, to inanimate things. So let's, 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 let's pull this thread and let's talk about the role of natural inclinations. Uh, you've said that, that you're inclined to think that human beings are natural meat eaters, but that doesn't necessarily make it right that they eat meat. There are lots of people who will argue from nature's perspective that we should or that we shouldn't. What is the connection between nature and our attitudes? And, and does the fact that some of this is natural bring us to any ethical conclusions? So there's a long debate in, in the history of philosophy about um, how you can't derive an ought from an is. And what this means is that you can't derive an ethical conclusion from a fact of the world. It's just, it just doesn't work logically. Now, there's debate about that. But, but yet, 
if people are naturally meat eaters and if people naturally recognize animals and if there is some sort of natural relationship, doesn't that necessitate some sort of connection, obligation, self-identification? Doesn't something follow from that? I, th I think we have to be really careful. And I, 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 of course, get into lots of arguments and I've had lots of discussions about people about, about, about meat. And what we're talking about here is what's sometimes called the naturalistic fallacy in philosophy or ises and oughts, confusing ises and oughts. And I tend to side with the philosophers on this. Uh, just because something is natural, I don't think it makes it right. Right, because I, you know, I think, for example, this is a very unpopular view in circles, because I'm enough of an evolutionary psychologist to think that rape as a sexual strategy is natural. I know that's, that's you know, not very PC, but I think it is. But that doesn't make it morally right. Um, animals do lots of things. You know, I, think, I think poison ivy is natural. Uh, death is natural. That doesn't make those things right. War, if anything, is probably natural. It doesn't make it right. I think the same applies to meeting. And I think the thing that made this question came up at the panel yesterday, what separates us from animals? And for me, it's the ability to overcome, to think things out and to overcome our natural inclination. So uh, in, in the movie, The African Queen, Catherine Hepburn looks at Humphrey Bogart and she says, nature, Mr. McNutt, is what we are here to overcome. And so we're the only species, not the chimpanzee, not the elephant, not the, not the dolphin. We're the only species that even has the remote possibility of doing the right thing, even though the right thing might not be, might not be the natural thing. We're also the only species that has pets. And so there's something there that might consider that perhaps naturally our job is to overcome this attitude. So, so then do you, do you think that vegetarianism is a rational response to an ethical need, or do you think that vegetarianism is just as arbitrary or irrational as all the other ethical positions that we've been flitting about today? Well, first of all, let's distinguish me as a person who likes to eat meat and me the guy with the brain that can think these things out because they're two they're two different things I'm a, I'm a meat eater and I don't feel guilty about it so let's just get that out of the way and I will flip into my other my other gear I think the defense again I think the defense for eating animals is the argument against eating animals is really strong and I think it's strong on environmental grounds I think it's strong on health grounds, and I think it's strong on moral grounds. That being said, I still eat meat. So, you know, I'm the world's worst hypocrite when it comes to this stuff, uh, but I, 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 I do. And, I, and I, so I do, think, I do think that vegetarianism is a logical way to go. What's interesting to me is how few vegetarians there are. And I think that you, this is just like that pet thing, you know, you read in the paper that everybody's foregoing meat and stuff like that. It's totally untrue. 95% of Americans eat meat regularly. 60% of vegetarians, you know, with the little quote marks, quote marks yeah. around them. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, sure. Glad I could be here. So-called vegetarians. The, the USDA did a study. They asked 13,000 people about their diet. And then they called them back two weeks later and said, what did you eat the previous 24 hours? 65% said had 65% of the vegetarians had eaten meat and, and animal flesh in the previous 24 hours, not the previous day, week, or year. 
Two-thirds of vegetarians go back to eating meat. So it's, it's hard to give up meat. It's, it's not hard for everybody. I've got a daughter. I've got twin daughters. So there's sort of a nice natural experiment. God bless me with a natural experiment. You know, I've got twin daughters. They're fraternal twin daughters. One of my daughters, Katie, decided when she was 12 she was going to be a vegetarian. And we thought, oh, great. This is a phase. This is a last. Well... You know, she's 29 now. She still is a vegetarian. And her sister, her sister ate whale in Japan and bugs in Thailand, you know. So um, some people can, can forego flesh easily, and I think there's a genetic component. My, my, my wife tells a story about she was vegetarian for two years, and she was spending the night at her grandmother's, and she walked downstairs, and her grandmother was uh, frying a pan of bacon. Bacon. I was going to say you know, bacon. It's, it's, it's always bacon. <laughs> you know, okay. Bacon so, is the most common thing. So, so, so and... So, so this is a two-part question, and the second part, which is the more important part, may be above both of our pay grades. But, but does this, part one, does all of this stuff make you or us hypocrites because the logical argument is for one thing and our behavior is the other? But the deeper and more difficult question is, are we obligated to follow through on what logic tells us to do? Okay. Why are we governed by the logical argument, especially as any philosopher will tell you, we can make logic, we can, we can rip apart any argument if you give us enough logical room. That's right. Um, first question, say it again. Uh, are, are you, are we hypocrites? Is, in, is inconsistency the, short answer, the same the, as hypocrisy? The, the I don't like the term, but the short answer is yes. And that John Hyatt, uh, John, John Hyatt, the, the uh, psychologist slash philosopher, says that you know we are we are all hypocrites. Some people are not. A few people are not. I've interviewed them. Half of them are really happy. Half of them are miserable because of the efforts that they have to go to to live a morally pure life. And I have a thing that I call the activist paradox, which is that the clear the clearer your moral vision, the harder it is for you to get through the day. Um, the question about 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 philosophers. Read it again. Read the question again. Well, the, the, the question I was just asking is, are we obligated to okay. follow the logic through, okay. to act on the here's, logic? Here's, this, is what I've, this is what I've learned. This is why philosophers hate me. Is that I think philosophers are space aliens. I think, I think philosophers are a different breed of cat. And that they do think, they do think logically. Now, they... Equally smart philosophers can come to, because they're so damn smart, you know, they can weasel around an argument. They can shuck and jive and turn your head around and get you to any place they want you to get to. I'm convinced of that. They can, I've, they, I've made a career out they, of it. You've made a career out <laughs> of it. But I think, I think philosophers do take, these issue, do take these issues seriously where most people don't. And the thing that's interesting to me is I've talked to a lot of animal activists, and I'll, I, you know, I know something. I know more than the average person about animal rights philosophy. I know more than most animal activists about animal rights philosophy. And I would, I would, I would talk to animal rights, animal rights activists about, all right, you know, you know, let's talk about the differences between Singer and Ray, deontological versus utilitarian views. And they don't, most of them don't have a clue about that stuff. They don't care about that stuff. So I think, I think philosophers are sort of a different breed when it comes to logic and consistency. I, I, I was at a wedding once, and I asked a, a, a priest if Augustine's proof for the, uh, if, if the proof of the existence of God had any effect on his life, and he just didn't want to talk to me for the rest of the day. <laughs> but, you know, this, 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 the, the, the alien from another planet thing, I mean, philosophers 
hold that position in part to try to find that objectivity, to try to step out of that hypocrisy and that inconsistency, although whether it works is another question. So we actually got a question on the Internet in advance before the show from um, Mark in, in Grand Forks. And, and Mark asked, you know, he said that, that as, as he was a child, he, he always imagined aliens coming down and wanting to eat him. And he said, uh, you know, um, no, you can't eat me. And they said, well, why not? Yeah. You know, you eat meat. And so this, 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 yeah. when we talk about aliens, not only are we sort of looking for objectivity, we're also, in a sense, looking, we're distancing ourselves from the animal question. Here's, here's a bizarre question, and then you can answer the question I actually asked. Are, are aliens animals? Yes, they are, and I know the answer to that. I can say for certain this is true. And I once did a uh, research project, probably the most one of the most fun ones I ever did, and um, we did it on the hate uh, on the treatment of animals in the tabloid press, like the National Enquirer, the World Weekly News. This is when the tabloid press was all over the place, and we had to decide whether certain things were animals, and one was space aliens. We, to, to include in our database. And so we found an article where a space alien had come to Earth and impregnated a human female, and she gave birth, uh, birth to a litter of puppies. So to me, that showed that space aliens do have the genetic... They are animals, yes. yes. Which, which is ironic. Okay, so we've solved that. Which it's ironic because the restaurant okay. chain space called Space Aliens, aliens, aliens. they don't serve vegetable, animal, or mineral. I don't know what that food is, but... Um, there's, there's, so, so the vegetarians they have trouble being consistent. The rest of us have trouble being consistent. You call this, you call the average person the troubled middle, the person the, 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 who, who, who isn't on one end of the spectrum or the other, but who is really dealing with the fact that sometimes they're going to do things that are inconsistent and they have to live with that. What, is, this, is this just is this the nature of the human condition? Or can, can we not live a life according to our visions? What's going on there? Okay, well, I, I think probably most people are not in the trouble middle because they don't bother to think about these things very deeply. And one reason why I tried to write my book is I, I wanted to get people to think about these things. So I was recruiting for the trouble middle. Um, and 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 one of the disappointments I, I you know I get letters from people that have written my book and they and they say they enjoyed it and stuff like that but they said well you didn't tell me how to live you didn't give me the answers to those, these big questions it's like yeah well I don't have the answers you know if the answers were easy you wouldn't need to be to tell you but I, but if I can get people to think about these issues in a deeper way I feel like I've done my job and I'm in the trouble middle because I am conflicted about eating meat I am conflicted about animal research. I am conflicted about, there's some things I'm not conflicted about. Cockfighting, I'm not conflicted about cockfighting. It's immoral, you know, we shouldn't have it. Um, we shouldn't have factory farms. Uh, I'm becoming more and more convinced that we shouldn't have thoroughbred racehorsing. I, I, so, I want so to I'm interrupt sorry. you for just yeah. a second because, because this brings up, as you talk about the conflicted nature, I want you to talk a little bit about the comparison that you make when you, when, when you argue that, that, that any factory farm chicken would, would choose to be uh, a rooster in a cockfight. Because this is, this, is, this is, I think, a perfect illustration of the kind of conflict that you want people to yeah. experience. One of the biggest surprises in my book, I have a, a chapter on chickens. And my doctoral dissertation was on chickens, and it was on, on cockfighting. I, I inadvertently, I stumbled into this world around me. I was living in Western North Carolina, started hanging out with these rooster fighters, shifted my topic from animal behavior to the moral worlds of cockfighters. 
And the thing that I found about cockfighters that was so interesting is just how boring they were. They were just like everybody else in, the, in, the, in, that, in, in that community, except they had this one little weird thing. You know, they went out Saturday night and they, 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 fought, they fought roosters. And I, I looked at their justifications for it. And I basically, in the book, I talk about how they, how they construct a moral world that makes this sense, where this makes sense. And then I started thinking more and more about chickens. And I also, in the same chapter, I... I describe what it's like to be an industrial chicken. And I basically conclude that the suffering, that, that the life of a gamecock, which lasts on average two years, in which you're treated like a pro athlete, in which you eat better than a lot of people, and yes, you die in a fight that lasts anywhere from a matter of seconds to up to an hour, that that life is vastly better than the McDonald's chicken that you ate on the way to the rooster fight. And what I do is I, is, I, is I discuss the life of a Cobb 500, which is the McDonald chicken. 42 days living in pain and squalor caused by the, over, you know, the genetic breeding of chickens, chicken meat for large breasts. These animals can hardly even stand up. It's a miserable, miserable life. But if you ask the average person about, you know, what do you think about cockfighting? It's like, oh, no, it's awful, it's brutal, it's disgusting, blah, 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 blah. On the other hand... The life of a barilla chicken doesn't get anywhere nearly. So it's a, it's, it's basically, it's, as I put it otherwise, it's the cruelties we condemn versus the cruelties we condone. We like meat and we like meat cheap. Um, and when Peter Singer wrote Animal Liberation, the United States, three, three billion animals were killed a year for our dining pleasure. Now, years after the publication of Animal Liberation, we eat 10 billion animals. Almost all of those are chickens. So the animal rights movement in terms of getting people to stop eating, eating animals has been a colossal failure. If anything, I think you could blame animal rights. No, nah, sh I shouldn't say this. But you, you, should, you could blame animal protectionists for the fact that we're killing more animals. So, okay, so, so we're, we're starting to wrap up. And, and this leads us to a position where we have to figure out not only what we know and what we don't know, but how we're supposed to act. And you talk about recent moral psychology and you talk about this division between the heart and the head. Do we follow the logic? Do we follow the head? Do we pursue the arguments and, and, and act as Plato would want us to act um, on the, the, the reason that, that makes us uh, human beings? Or do we follow our moral sentiments and our, 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 our human uh, emotions and, and, and where do we go from here? What do we do with this morass of conflicting information? This is why I hate talking to philosophers because they, they basically understand what I'm saying and they get, they get to the heart of the problem. Um, this is what happened when I was working on my book. Uh, my book ended on this terribly bleak note. I had concluded that you can't trust logic philosophers lead you astray, but that you can't trust your heart either because you're, the, the human heart told people for centuries that slavery was okay. The human heart tells us that that smile on the dolphin at SeaWorld, that, dolph that dolphin is happy living its life swimming circles in this 
dolphin Guantanamo Bay, you know, equivalent of Guantanamo Bay imprisonment. So you can't trust your heart and you can't trust your head. What can you trust? And that's how I ended my book. It's like, God, this, is, this sucks. You, know, you can't, you can't no, no reason to live, no reason to get up in the morning. And I had to come up with an ending. My, my, my editor said, my publisher said, listen, man, you've got to end this book some way nice. And, and so after thinking about it, I decided to end it on what philosophers called virtue ethics. Could I go out and find a couple of people and describe their lives that I thought that had made good arrangements? And I focus on two people. One was a guy named Michael Mountain, who was a president of a group things called Best Friends Animal Society that you might know, and it's where the Michael Vick pit bulls are. And I went out to Kanab, Utah, and I studied a guy that runs a $35 million operation, full-time animal activist, that animals are his life, and how he works that out. He's a vegan. He doesn't kill the ants in his kitchen. And then I met a woman. I met both these people in bars. Met him in a bar in a Sheridan Hotel in an animal rights meeting. The other one I met at this little funky beach resort in, in uh, South Carolina, and she's a hairdresser, a woman named Judy Muzzy, and her thing is saving sea turtles. And she didn't care about animal rights arguments and stuff like that. But she gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning every morning and goes and combs the beach and, and, and uh, digs up turtle nests. She works with the state and saves sea turtles. And I spent a couple of days with her doing that. And so I thought these, are, these, are, these people in some ways are opposite, but in some ways they're the same. They, they care deeply about animals, but they, they were doing things in their own way to make the world a better place. And they were people that I admired. So it seems to me that one way we can look for guidance is to look in our own hearts, which is sometimes fallible, but to try and identify people who we admire and use them as sort of moral models. That's not a completely intellectually satisfying idea, but it's the best I could do. It's also the answer that Aristotle came up with. It's the answer that Aristotle gave us to find that balance between um, what he called intellectual virtue and moral virtue, knowing what the right thing is, is to do and doing the right thing and how we become morally virtuous and how we become intellectually virtuous is by looking at the virtuous people in the community and copying them until it becomes our own nature. So at minimum, you're in very good company. Th that, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and, and with, with that, I think this is a really wonderful moment um, to, to end the conversation. Hal, thank you so much for joining us. I have so much enjoyed being here, and I have so much enjoyed being on the show. And to our audience, thank you so much for joining us. We will be back in just a minute to do a wrap-up. You've been listening to Hal Herzog and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life, live at the University of North Dakota Writers' Conference. <laughs> Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. We're back with Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We've been talking with Hal Herzog about 
animals and, and the human attitude towards them, our relationships with them, and the endless quandaries that, that we're faced with when we think about what it means to treat animals in the right way, what it means to see animals in the right way, what it means to feel properly about animals. And if there's anything that we came up with, it's that we don't have any conclusions yet. And so what do we do? What do we do when we're faced with a lack of conclusions? Well, we can look at a couple different places. We can look at history. We can look at language. We can look at logic. We can look at our feelings. And the problem is that all of those things just add to the complexity. If we look at history, we do have a sense of progress, but we also have this sense that there's no consistency in what happened in the past. The Nazis, one of the most murderous regimes in the history of humanity, while they were killing people, were protecting animals. So they're not role models for us. What are we going to do when, when they don't even give us a black and white issue? We can look at language, but language is constructed to get us to think about animals in a particular way. We eat pork, we don't eat pig meat. We eat uh, beef, we don't eat uh, cow meat. But also we have pets. We don't name our dogs dog. We name our dogs Rover or Rosie or Sally or Mingus or what have you. We're stuck with the language that gives us such ambiguity that we don't even know whether animals are persons, but we seem to think that corporations are persons. And where does that leave us when we don't know the difference between that which, that which is living and that which is a political institution? We can look at logic, but all logic gives us is the sense that we're hypocrites, the sense that we're irrational, the sense that we're inconsistent. That's not what logic is supposed to do. What logic is supposed to do is help us sort all this out, help us figure out how to come up with an answer and to get to a conclusion that will then motivate us to act. But logic in this instant has betrayed us. Logic has given us a world where we follow one rule at one instance and one rule at the other instance, and we cannot explain how we get from one to the other other than that's just what I feel. And so are feelings what's left? Well, feelings to a certain extent are culturally determined. Some people love their dogs. Some people love their cats. Some people love their beetles. Other people don't. In fact, our neighbors don't feel the same way about our animals that we do. Sometimes our spouses don't. And so where do the feelings leave us? The best answer we can get at this point is the answer that Hal Herzog has given us. That the feeling is not the will to act, but rather the will to question. He said in our discussion that he's recruiting for the troubled middle, for the people who have thought about these issues and don't have an answer on one end or the other, but are really concerned and focusing on what to do. In that sentence, the issue of importance is not the middle, but the troubled. Where does this environment, where does this attitude lead us and where does these concerns take us and maybe it will take us to a better place maybe it'll take us to a more moral place and maybe it will lead us to the people who we can watch and learn from and look at as role models for behavior towards animals towards our neighbors towards our friends towards our books towards our corporation and towards our world the role models are also people in the troubled middle, but they help bring us to where we want to go. And I'm pretty sure that we can all be confident in saying that Hal Herzog is one of those role models and one of those people that leads us to a place where we will want to be. This has been Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. As always, it's an honor to be here with you.
Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album, Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzflutewinestein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>